Delighted to welcome you back to uh, Network Capital, Dr. Tharoor. It's been an adventurous few months for you. Um, and I personally enjoyed so much uh, reading your book and just uh, seeing the way you led your campaign. Thanks very much for taking time out for us. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, Gresh. It's always uh, a joy talking to you and, and uh, reaching your enthusiastic, well-read young audience. So that's going to be my joy. Go ahead. So Dr. Thiru, today we are going to discuss uh, Ambedkar, uh, A Life, uh, a book you've written. Tell us why you started working on this book, what prompted it, and uh, did the fact that you did not uh, think caste uh, to be too much of a factor in your growing up shape up uh, this book? Well, I have to say that it really was actually a negative in some ways uh, to be oblivious to caste in my childhood because I, I already had a fairly rude awakening to this when I wrote a column um, sparked by a controversy involving a newspaper, I mean, a, a news anchor, Rajiv Sardesai, who made some comment about caste that um, got him roundly trolled. And I, I sort of wrote slightly in defense of people of that kind of background who are brought up to be unconscious of caste and no caste almost the way in which, say, a Brit would relate to the old school tie or a club that they belong to or whatever. And um, I got a very pointed and justified sharp rebuke from a young Dalit girl, who, um, an 18-year-old blogger, who said that no Dalit can afford to grow up oblivious of caste. To claim to be oblivious of caste itself is a reflection of privilege. And that kind of shook me a little bit because I really understood uh, from that, that, that you know, one, one couldn't afford to ignore something which is a reality for such so many millions of our own fellow citizens. And, and I... Um, was always a great admirer of Ambedkar's because just to imagine the scale of what he accomplished, you know, to be born into a so-called untouchable family, and that too in the late 19th century, that too as the 14th and last child of a poor subedar in army cantonment, this would normally have guaranteed a life of neglect and poverty and discrimination. But he rose above that and he achieved a level of success in multiple fields that would have been spectacular for any child of privilege. So it was an amazing life. And, you know, there's some great biographies, especially written by contemporaries or near contemporaries of his, but they're all mammoth tomes. And I feared that people today would not have the time and the patience to plow through them. So I thought, why not write a short accessible biography that would kind of reintroduce Ambedkar to today's young people? You know, if you look at uh, my biography of Nehru, I tried to do something similar. I thought it was an extraordinary life. And you have... Uh, you know, literally wonderful biographies that are seven volumes and up or 700 pages and counting. And I realized that in today's day and age, in the era of, of WhatsApp and, and Netflix and so on, uh, these books are not going to get the readership that the subjects deserve. Whereas maybe a short book that you can finish on a flight, uh, or at least a longish flight, <laughs> I've written a, a kind of 240-page book, would distill all the essential story of his life, which is a fascinating life, his main political and other battles, and at the same time come up with some understanding from today's perspective of what his legacy is for all Indians. That's why I set out to do that, Ukash. Tell us a bit about his early career. It seems like the non-Brahmin solidarity was a key part of you know, the early phase of his career. Would love some comments from you. 
Well, it, it, it's, it's partly true because, you know, if you look at the sponsorship he got from some of the Maharajas, uh, the Maharajas were also people who didn't particularly welcome the kind of stranglehold of the Brahmin community on the British understanding of India and Indian society. And uh, some of them came from, quote unquote, lower castes and were made conscious of that by the, the Brahmins. And someone like the Maharaja Baroda would actually go out of his way to ensure that he would give support and, um, and, and blessings, as it were, to uh, people from lower caste who had the talent and the aptitude to try and, and come up with, um, with, with you know, a, a, a higher education abroad and so on. They gave scholarships to Dalit students. Uh, it was partially out of that anti-Brahmin solidarity that you're talking about. But I, I don't want to see it purely in anti-anything terms, because there were also Brahmins and other people of those backgrounds who reached out to Ambedkar and tried to support him. And some of the early voices uh, against untouchability included prominent upper caste people like Justice Ranade, who was uh, Ranade, who was a, a very, very major voice against untouchability in the early years of the century. And um, I would say that I don't think Ambedkar himself saw himself as anti-anybody. He just wanted the Hindu religion to be completely reformed to, as he put it later in life, to annihilate caste. And that was what he was striving for. Uh, if caste didn't matter, then discrimination wouldn't occur. That was his logic. And that was very much a, a kind of enlightenment logic, which, um, which a man of his education and wide reading and also exposure to, to Western ideas through his education in places like New York and London well, would have acquired. And I think it's not surprising that he took this uh, challenge on with a tremendous amount of courage, but he had to do this in the face of some really pathetic social realities in India. I mean, Baroda gave him a scholarship. He went off, did a PhD in Colombia, got astonishing honors, wrote the first significant paper on caste, which kind of makes him a pioneering sociologist, wrote a major thesis on Indian finance, his study of the problem of the rupee and his study of provincial taxation are amongst the two early major works of economic scholarship in 20th century India. He was a serious economist and a serious sociologist in that way. Then he comes back to India. He's offered a job by the Maharaja of Baroda, but when he gets to Baroda, he cannot find a place to live because he's known to be a Dalit. And when he applies for a government bungalow, his file is transferred from desk to desk. Piran's even unwilling to take a file from his hands. And then he finally, uh, out of despair, sort of uh, pretends to be a Parsi and takes a room in a Parsi boarding house. But when that ruse is found out and a bunch of angry Parsis wielding hockey sticks and lathis descend on him and drive him out of his room, he's reduced to spending the night in a park weeping with all his high certificates and, and papers and books strewn around him. And he resigns in protest and leaves Baroda. Now, this is the kind of experience a man of such high attainment had to go through merely because of his caste. As Gandhiji was later to say, uh, you know, he, he can be expected to be far more bitter than he actually was, uh, Ambedkar, uh, having experiences like this in his life. And there was a fair bit of financial challenges that were involved as well, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the fact is that he was living from hand to mouth, even when he got a scholarship. Uh, scholarships in those days basically covered your tuition and very little towards your room and board. Um, even I, you know, 70 years later, going off to study in America, recounted uh, my own experience of having to reduce my uh, fare to one meal a day because there was no discretionary expenditure tossed in with scholarships. And Ambedkar certainly in those days 
um, had to had to do that. So he um, was lucky in a sense to find a financial benefactor in his first roommate at Columbia, who was a Parsi from Bombay, was completely free of any caste prejudice, Naval Vathena. And Vathena gave him money on more than one occasion uh, to tide him over the hard times, including uh, when he needed money, um, frankly, to, to support his basic living expenses, as well as money to be able to practice law later in Bombay after he got his legal qualifications from London. When he came to Bombay, he had to get something called a sanad, uh, which costs money, and he didn't have the money. I mean, it's all of this... Uh, all of these privations he went through um, would have been certainly um, uh, some things that toughened his spirit and his spine because he really had to go through a lot of difficulty and indignity, financial, social, um, uh, moral, one might say. I mean, he was very acutely conscious, for example, of the fact that his behavior and his financial means inflicted an enormous amount of stress on his poor wife, who had to look after the family while he was abroad studying. But he knew that those studies were important to self-improvement to equip him to take on a larger cause. And that was the, the spirit in which he did it. Um, yeah, the only thing, as you would say, you can accuse him of is the elitism of merit, right? Because that was literally the only thing he had. <laughs> yeah, well, merit, there's no doubt about it. He was an extraordinary man. I mean, one of the earliest Indian students in the US, he earned multiple doctorates from Columbia University and the University of London, economics, politics, and law. Uh, as an heir to millennia of discrimination, he managed to be admitted to the bar in London, became one day chair of the Indian Constituent Assembly's Constitution Drafting Committee. Uh, the descendant of illiterates, he wrote a remarkable number of books whose content and range testified to an eclectic mind and a very sharp and provocative intellect. And this insignificant infant in a Dalit family scrabbling in the dust of a little cantonment town called Mahau became the first law minister of free India in the most impressive cabinet ever assembled in New Delhi. So when he died, age 65, and just 65, which is not such a long life, I'm 66, I might add, Dr. Ambedkar had achieved and accumulated a set of distinctions that few have ever matched in our country. And the only one distinction that remained, which was getting the Bharat Ratna that was conferred to him posthumously in 1990. So this is a man who literally is second to none in what he's achieved in his own life and, and from his country. And his greatness can't even be reduced to these accomplishments because all were extraordinary. And when you think of what he was born into, what he endured and who he became, uh, he really was one of the giants. In fact, there was a, a poll conducted at the end of the last century. And, and, and I think some 20 million people participated in this poll and they voted him the greatest Indian, uh, even ahead of Mahatma Gandhi. So that is the kind of, um, the kind of uh, figure he was and, and his intellect, which you can come across in his writings, even I can't claim to have read everything he wrote because we've calculated he wrote about 17,500 pages in total. Um, and, 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 uh, and he had, even after his death, he published books because he had left behind uh, manuscripts on his table. This is his book, The Buddha and His Dhamma. Uh, he wrote the last words and slumped on his table over his last words and died. That was the, the way in which he toiled and worked. And that's an extraordinary man, Ukash, uh, somebody who really more uh, of today's generation of Indians need to know about. Yeah, and he's continuing to shape popular culture. Now that Dalit rap, uh, poetry, a lot of it has been influenced by him. Absolutely. 
And you know the fact is that he had some controversial views, and you don't have to agree with everything he stood for. But um, but he really is quite astonishingly, astonishingly uh, significant figure in our political and intellectual history, because um, you know he fought discrimination against the Dalits. Uh, he brought an affirmative action into the constitution, but he did much more than that because constitution making empowered the individual Indian citizen after decades uh, in which the British had really seen Indian politics in terms of communities and communal representation. And he um, had certain radical views about uh, Indian democracy, about India's political economy, labor rights. Um, and, you know, I think we do him a disservice in just worshipping him as an idol uh, in a sort of act of bhakti, which is something he said is very bad in politics. So all of this suggests to me that, um, that, that he is somebody who we should see not just as the great emancipator of India's Dalits, uh, nor should we just glorify him as a saint about criticism, but we should embrace his life and his ideas as a whole. All those 7,500 pages of writings and speeches, the activism and the politics, the triumphs and the failures. He lost a lot of elections, for example. Uh, all of that's also part of his public record. And, and it marked uh, an impact on in India's public consciousness, uh, which came first from his words and second from his legacy, somebody whose legacy has grown since his death. I don't know how many people realize that today, this is a gentleman whose statues probably outnumber those of any Indian except possibly Mahatma Gandhi, and even that may be a matter of debate. There isn't a village in India without a statue of Ambedkar. It's just this, this amazing, amazing impact on, on, India's, uh, on India's life. Since you mentioned Gandhi, I'd love to understand Gandhi and Ambedkar's relationship. Sure which you touch upon extensively in the book. Mm -hmm. Economically, no, I, social, socially, they differ so much. Could you comment right. on I, that? I think, I think we have to acknowledge that uh, there was a certain incompatibility from start to finish. Uh, it starts off with the fact that Gandhiji saw Dalit emancipation, or as he called them, Harijans, people of God, as his special cause, and he felt perfectly entitled to do that, whereas Ambedkar said, you haven't suffered what we have suffered, we need to speak for ourselves. And that became an issue which uh, I think, frankly, um, uh, separated the two of them uh, rather fundamentally, uh, because, um, you know, even the term Harijan was seen by people like Ambedkar as patronizing, uh, because, it, you know, everyone is a child of God. Why do you call one set of people that as if they're somehow worthy of some special discrimination? Similarly, um, he, um, he was wary of Gandhiji's leadership of the national movement, seeing Gandhiji and the Congress party as merely seeking a shift in rule from the British uh, to the uh, Hindu majority in India. And he felt that uh, you can't really just empower the Hindu majority because uh, the truth is that uh, the result of that would be that you would end up with, um, with, a, with a majority um, uh, of people who are dominating the so-called untouchables, you know? And in fact, he made a rather sharp comment uh, that uh, Mahatmas have come and Mahatmas have gone, but the untouchables have remained untouchables forever. This was his sort of bitterness, if you like, about Mahatma Gandhi's uh, role and contribution um, on, towards the Dalit cause. Uh, at the same time, um, he understood that Gandhiji was trying to do good uh, through his abolition, abolitionist efforts and his contribution to Hindu consciousness of the wrongs of un untouchability. 
Um, just as I mentioned, Justice Ranade earlier, Ranade, I think is the right pronunciation, where a, a social justice movement, um, a social conference, which is also a reformist thing. So also he thought that Mahatma Gandhi was doing some good and he wasn't critical. In fact, he went to see Mahatma Gandhi for the first time around 1930 to seek and get his advice, but that meeting didn't go very well. And when, when Gandhiji sort of tried to incorporate um, Dr. Ambedkar um, into his efforts, Dr. Ambedkar basically said, look, you know, essentially he said, you know, we, we untouchables have no homeland because our homeland has mistreated us, that kind of thing. Now, it's fair to say that Gandhiji and Ambedkar did agree on many measures to counter caste discrimination, political reservations, temple entry, inter-caste dining, inter-caste marriages, eradication of untouchability as a policy, general educational opportunities, greater employment opportunities. But Ambedkar said, look, I've got to stand apart from Mahatma Gandhi on this issue because um, if I oppose the British inside with Gandhi, I wouldn't have gained anything from the British. The British are ruling us now. Um, whereas Gandhiji would not give uh, the Dalit people anything more, in his view, in Ambedkar's view, and this may be an unfair view, anything more than pious blessings and hollow platitudes because Hindu society was still anchored in a concept of caste that Gandhiji was unprepared to repudiate. So he didn't want to subsume the Dalit cause within the larger Congress struggle for nationalist independence, a nationalist movement, and he felt that that would suddenly lose priority. So he, he wanted to continue uh, to have make the Dalit movement his biggest priority. So when Ambedkar was introduced by Gandhiji onto the central board of the Anti-Untouchability League, which the Mahatma Gandhi, uh, Mahatma Gandhi renamed the Harijan Sevak Sangh, Ambedkar decided not to attend any of its meetings. He said if the organization would be controlled by, by Dalits, then fine, and focus on annihilating caste. But you have an organization that's largely controlled by caste Hindus, because uh, Gandhiji had this idea that untouchability is a Hindu sin, and therefore Hindus should take the lead to end the sin because it was their sin. Uh, and now Ambedkar just didn't find this, um, uh, find this palatable. Now, Ambedkar was not the only view, huh? because M.C. Raja, for example, the prominent Madras Dalit uh, leader, believes strongly in the importance of organizing the so-called depressed classes within mainstream Hindu society. Uh, he would argue that Ambedkar's advocacy of separate electorates right up to the Pune Pact would, would simply make the community, which is already socially untouchable, politically untouchable as well. So th there were debates and disputes about this, but Ambedkar's view was very clear, and his view was, um, was, was based on that. Now, another area in which they disagreed, for example, um, uh, was that as an economist, Ambedkar disagreed with the Gandhian philosophy of limiting needs and restricting consumption, what has later been known as small is beautiful. Ambedkar saw that as linked to a mindset of poverty. He was strongly in favor of economic growth. He said the problem is not property, but it's unequal distribution. <clears throat> Similarly, he had little patience with the Mahatma's faith in idyllic village life, which Ambedkar believed condemned the depressed classes, as he called them, to a life of degradation. Gandhiji was romanticizing traditional village life and where the soul of India resided and so on. And Ambedkar said villages are cesspools of caste oppression and social and economic backwardness. So the pressure of population on land, according to Ambedkar, needed to be eased by industrialization, which would offer meaningful and remunerative work to surplus agrarian labor. And for Ambedkar, industrialization and urbanization were the only way out for the Dalits. 
But for Gandhiji, villages were to be idealized and industry was considered satanic. So these were mutually irreconcilable worldviews. And you have to see that these were the kind of differences that separated them for a long time. But I, it will be said, and I do say this later in the book, that I do feel that uh, <clears throat> Ambedkar Saab was sometimes a bit ungenerous to Mahatma Gandhi, who, uh, while they had very legitimate grounds for disagreements on all these issues that I've mentioned, um, Mahatma Gandhi still tried to win over uh, Dr. Ambedkar repeatedly. Uh, but uh, Dr. Ambedkar, apart from just not agreeing with Mahatma Gandhi's approach, was also very mistrustful uh, of, of Mahatma Gandhi and, and, and said a number of very harsh things about him, which I've quoted in the book. Um, and, and I think uh, that kind of thing persisted even when Mahatma Gandhi died, for example, and was assassinated. Ambedkar had nothing to say about it. Um, and, and subsequently in, in interviews to the BBC and so on, he was quite, quite harsh about Mahatma Gandhi. So it, it became in many ways a schism between the two of them uh, that was fairly fundamental and that has been seen by many as almost a defining uh, difference. Mahatma Gandhi kept trying to, to win him over and saying, you know, I would love to tell me how I can change to win you over. And Ambedkar could not be, could not be won over. Would you call Ambedkar an early feminist? Yeah, I think, I think on that there's no question that he had very progressive views for his time on, on um, uh, women and their place in society, his relationship with his first wife, Ramabai, which was founded upon friendship and debate. Um, and, 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 uh, and he saw the personal, as it were, as political. Uh, he was, in that sense, feminist within the home, but also publicly he spoke very extensively on the role of women in Indian society. Um, when he talked about equality for Dalits, he also talked about equality for women. You mustn't forget that. <laughs> and he uh, was equally rejecting of both caste discrimination and gender discrimination. Uh, no doubt about that. In his, in his um, pioneering 1916 lecture at Columbia University on caste in India, that first work of sociology I mentioned, he said that marriage within a, a caste and community was a primary reason for the perpetuation of caste, but it's also something which punishes women. And then he gave a very famous speech to the uh, All India Depressed Classes Women's Conference, that is basically Dalit women, in 1942. And his message was the following, give education to your children, instill ambitions in them, don't be in a hurry to marry, marriage is a liability for you. Do not impose it upon your children unless financially they're able to meet the, the, the costs of marriage. Let each girl who marries stand up to her husband claimed to be her husband's friend and equal, and refused to be his slave. 1942. I mean, 80 years later, there are still parents in India today who expect their children, uh, their girl daughters, to, to, to have uh, a submissive attitude to, to the husbands in an arranged marriage. Whereas Ambedkar had the courage to undermine even the sanctity of marriage in our society, uh, where in our society such importance is given to the marital status of a woman. And his demand for women to stand as equals with men within marriage constituted an unparalleled and, and, and audacious assertion of dignity for Indian women within their own families. I would say it was a really astonishingly feminist stand. There was a tradition of Dalit feminism. I can't claim to an expert on it, but there are names like Muktabai Salve in the mid-19th century, Jaibai Chaudhary in the early 20th, who have well-known Dalit feminists. But a male voice amongst uh, the Dalit feminists 
Ambedkar is the first and most prominent. And he had a lot of interesting things like uh, uh, he said in the Bombay Legislative Assembly once, if men have to bear the pangs that women have to undergo during childbirth, no man would even consent to bear a single child in his life. And that's the kind of, you know, he had this empathy for what women were going to. He actually brought up in, in the Legislative Assembly in Bombay uh, issues of women's uh, limited access to medical assistance, loss of lives of women due to inadequate or unaffordable health care. Um, he, he recommended birth control for women in the interest of the women's health and well-being. Uh, he even tried to pass a resolution in support of government-funded birth control. But of course, the, um, the majority opposed it. Uh, on the ground that it would spread immorality and cause a breakdown of the Indian family unit. So this is somebody who is very progressive on women's issues uh, at a time when it was far from fashionable to Sobi. What was uh, Ambedkar's outlook towards the British Raj? Look, I mean, he, he has been accused by people like Arun Shori of being a collaborator and so on. And I think in all fairness, um, that's not fair, because what Ambedkar saw was that the prolongation of British rule afforded him opportunities to get his own community to overcome the imposed handicaps of untouchability and caste discrimination. So he basically felt that foreign rule can be used by Dalits to achieve their own emancipation. Then he was willing to see it preserved until such emancipation had been achieved. Now, you can call that uh, collaborationist as, as Shuri does. It certainly didn't endear him to the nationalists at that time because their sacred passion was freedom from foreign oppression. But Ambedkar argued that for his community, freedom from domestic oppression was even more urgent and important than freedom from foreign oppression. So this is something which um, I must say uh, is, is, the, is the critique against him. I think Ambedkar, throughout his, his cooperation with British institutions, uh, roundtable conference, uh, legislative assembly, the viceroy's council in the end, and so on. All of those were done with a view to improving the lot of the Dalits. So he tried to wrest concessions from the British for the Dalit people in each of these bodies. Um, and if in the process you saw him as enabling or facilitating uh, British dominance, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's a partially explicable charge, but it's one which I think Ambedkar would tell you that I my job is that you can't just create a situation where we have a shift from British rule to Hindu majority rule. We must have shift from British rule to true Indian democracy, <clears throat> where Dalits have the rights that the Hindu upper caste are denying themselves. Tell us a bit about Ambedkar's political career. Was he good at building alliances? Not so great. I mean, I, I would say that he founded party after party. His first attempt was to go beyond the Dalits and create a labor movement party. The Independent Labor Party is what it was called. Uh, he had already founded a number of social organizations, particularly the Bajkir Hitakarani Sabha, which was the, the major vehicle he had for fighting for Dalit rights and so on. But those are not political parties. They were NGOs. When uh, politics became possible, when it was possible to form a party to contest elections, he created the Labour Party and said, I'm fighting for the rights of oppressed people. So Dalits, as well as uh, people of, uh, of, uh, of the labour classes, the working classes, uh, can be covered in this. Because frankly, you had Dalit labourers in the textile mills of Bombay and Nagpur, but you also had, frankly, uh, um, uh, labour 
who are other castes. <clears throat> so the, the idea that labor, um, and I, I mentioned earlier that he had fought for maternity benefits to women laborers, that was also beyond caste. It's, it's women uh, of the Dalit community and women laborers of other communities. He wanted to say that the, the laborer, who by and large was either a Shudra or a Dalit, uh, deserved special help. And so the Independent Labor Party was founded in August 1936 to speak for the interests of all the downtrodden, industrial workers, but even farmers, tenants, and landless laborers on farms were considered his, his constituency. And he demanded also through social reform the elevation of the condition of the Dalits. He had a social democratic platform, platform called for land reform, wanted social safety nets, improved sanitation in the villages, those kinds of things. So he situated his Labour Party on the left in proximity to the communists, but distinct from them. Because he says that essentially um, you need to have um, um, you need to have a, a revolution in social attitudes and not just the proletariat, the communist thing of you know class. If you only focus on class, what about caste and so on? And he said, for example, the caste system is not really a division of labor, it's also a division of laborers. And that also has to be understood. So anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, that was his first attempt. It didn't do badly in those first elections of 37. He actually um, managed to get 14 of the 17 candidates he nominated um, elected in the Bombay Assembly elections. He only it was provincial elections in those days. He didn't have a national party. So he managed to he managed to get some attention for his for his um, um, serious um, uh, goals as a as a labor leader, but the party didn't last that long. And of course, um, when the um, the Quit India movement came and the nationals are locked up and so on, he shifted his focus to joining the Viceroy's Council, and there he was essentially in an executive role. He was still a member for Labour, so he tried to support Labour that way. Uh, but you can't really say that he did so as a politician. He was there in some ways as a as a, um, uh, an appointee of the British. So that was the first major attempt. Then he created uh, a party called the Scheduled Caste Federation, uh, which um, um, I would say in many ways um, he, he um, um, felt that the Labour Party um, had kind of outlived its utility at that time. That was his own view. Um, it also didn't help that the Labour Party had actually uh, kind of, you know, been separated a little bit from the uh, nationalist movement and that therefore had also affected it a bit. So he created a different party. Uh, there, I'm afraid he lost more elections than he won. And then finally, just before his death, in the year of his death, he created a third party called the Republican Party of India, which has outlasted him. Uh, but it's a rather small party and essentially only in Maharashtra. There are branches elsewhere, but very few have one serious elective office. Um, and I think the most well-known uh, MP from that party now is a minister in the BJP government, and that's Ram Das Atavali. Otherwise, there isn't a, a whole lot to show for his record as alliance builder, as an alliance builder. And when you ask me, you know, um, does that point to a stellar record? Um, I would say probably not so much, because ultimately, you could argue that um, that um, politics in terms of organized parties uh, was so centered around his own dramatic personality, his very hard work, his energy, and so on, that very little significant stuff could last if he wasn't personally involved. And that again became a problem. So that's that's right. some of the some of the uh, 
if you like, less than stellar achievements. But the fact that he did all this and that there is a party today still bearing a name that he gave it in 1956 uh, is still not to be sneezed at. I mean, not too many people have, have achieved a fraction of what he was able to achieve even politically. Uh, just coming towards the close of uh, this podcast, I have two questions. One on Ambedkar's blind spot and two about Ambedkar's future, say in 2050. So let's start with the blind spots. There are four specific points you highlight in the book. Um, could you just give our listeners a preview into what those four blind spots are? Well, I, I felt, and I, uh, this is obviously the controversial part of the book, and I wasn't writing to create controversies. I was just saying that I'm not a hagiographer. I don't want to elevate him to being a saint. He wouldn't have wanted it either. So I had to look at his flaws as I saw them. And, and I did think that they were um, not the flaws that the conventional critics have identified. You've seen Shori attacking him for collaborating with the British. Uh, I've defended him on that. Um, uh, you, you've seen attacks that he exaggerated the hardships of his childhood. That's utter nonsense because everything is very well documented. Uh, and frankly, the horrors that uh, the Dalits had to go through, uh, there's absolutely no way you can minimize them. They're really horrific. But the four areas that I do uh, identify, first are his blind spot on the Adivasis, um, where he too, like some of these overeducated uh, urban Indians, uh, regarded them as savages in need of civilizing. He refers to them uh, in speeches as leading the life of hereditary animals, uh, and, and he made some fairly contemptuous speeches, even in the Constituent Assembly. Um, and he says the Aboriginals haven't even developed any political sense to make use of their opportunities. They can easily become instruments in the hands of a majority or a minority. They won't do any good for themselves. So we should just create a commission to administer their areas. I mean, that kind of idea. Um, he wanted almost to sort of confine them to Bantustans, as the South Africans did with the Blacks uh, in, in the apartheid era. And, and I would say that that was most unfortunate because, you know, there were Adivasi representatives like Jaipal Singh from Jharkhand in the Constituent Assembly who spoke brilliantly and said, you know, we don't need safeguards. We're not asking for protection. We want to be treated like every other Indian and so on. I'm a jungle, said Jaipal Singh in parliament. But he says um, that every one of us should march to freedom together. My people have been disgracefully treated for the last 6,000 years. Uh, but we are still democratic. They're the most, we're the most democratic people on earth, and you need to give us democratic rights. So I think it was slightly demeaning of Ambedkar to have spoken the way he did about the Adivasis. The second blind spot is about the Hindu faith, because I think Ambedkar was very negative about Hindus and Hinduism, and I think the more he felt thwarted in his attempts to, re to reform Hindu society, the more sweeping and scathing he became. Uh, he would say things like, Hindus are a race of pygmies and dwarfs, stunted in stature and wanting in stamina. Um, uh, he, 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 of course, he was furious about the caste system, but in the process, he generalized about Hinduism and Hindu civilization. Hindu civilization, he said, is a diabolical contrivance to enslave humanity. Its proper name would be infamy. And one occasion, he said something so devastating. He said, there can be a better or worse Hindu, but a good Hindu there cannot be. I mean, that kind of language is really a bit extreme. And I wanted to point out to him, we never lived, I mean, I died, I was born the year he died, so I could never have said this to him myself. But there's so much more to Hinduism than he saw, because there is the Hinduism of spiritual inquiry and philosophical debates, the Hinduism of the Bhakti movement, of Chokhamela, of Kabir, of Ramdas, the philosophy of difference preached by Vivekananda. 
Adi Shankara is acknowledging that the Atman in a Dalit is no different from the Atman in a Brahmin. Uh, all of this, and even Gandhiji's own very, very liberal, humane versions of Hinduism, um, all of this, I think, uh, Ambedkar never wanted to recognize, and he denounced Hindu society and the Hindu faith together, um, uh, which I think, I mean, Gandhiji himself said you can understand and forgive Ambedkar all his bitterness uh, because of what he had suffered and watched other Dalits suffering. But given his intellectual gifts, I thought this sweeping denunciation of Hinduism was intellectually unworthy and unsubtle for somebody who was so brilliant. Then the third we've already talked about was his clash with Gandhiji. Um, I've explained those areas in which I largely agree with Ambedkar uh, that he had every right to disagree with Gandhiji on things like village India, on things like uh, uh, the, the industrialization versus, <coughs> versus uh, rural life debate and so on. But he was never very gracious about it. And he said a lot of nasty things, even after Gandhiji's death, that he didn't really need to. And, and that's where I, I, I say that Ambedkar, who has you know, endured so much himself, could have afforded, I think, to be a little more generous um, about Gandhiji. And the fourth and final criticism would be of his statism. He was very much a believer in the strong state and the institutions and mechanisms of a strong central government to bring about the empowerment of Dalits. It's largely because he rejected Hindu society and Hindu caste system and so on. So he thought that Gandhiji's approach of trying to reform Hinduism through moral and spiritual reforms will achieve nothing. You need a tough state that will crack the whip. And so Ambedkar saw the state as an instrument to transform society, using law as a kind of coercive instrument. And for him, the state was an agent of enlightenment Hindu society in particular and Indian society in general was aggressive and backward. So he had this whole notion of being a centralizing top-down transformation being directed from the top to overcome the prejudices and the hidebound habits of ossified villages. He never, for example, had any patience with the ideas of local self-government. It wasn't in the constitution that he wrote. Gandhians actually objected in the constituent assembly, but it took till the early 90s when we had the 73rd and 74th amendments bringing in Panchayati Raj before that gap could be overcome. Um, so there was Ambedkar in his suit and tie, issuing sort of progressive modern diktats to the ignorant dhoti-clad villagers whom he considered to be full of bigotry and, and caste discrimination and covered in the dust and grime of their rural backwardness. That kind of image is not a reassuring one because that sort of evokes the authoritarian fantasies of other modernizing autocracies. I mean, he would rather have been an Ataturk sort of cracking the whip and forcing change the way Ataturk changed Turkey than he would have been a Nehru or a, or a Democrat. Um, and and, and I, I, he even once suggested that the best way to summarily eradicate the caste system and untouchability was if India could produce an Ataturk or a Mussolini. Now, that kind of thing, you obviously, no Democrat like myself would possibly endorse. And I think that his... Obsession with annihilating caste was essential, but his better judgment, I think, was on this matter could be questioned. So I see these as the flaws, the Adivasi uh, uh, neglect, the uh, sweeping denunciations of Hinduism, the without making any allowances intellectually for its good, its other side, the uh, ungraciousness towards Gandhiji, uh, and finally, the, the statist centralization kind of approach, which um, is not terribly democratic. In it. So these are, in my view, the four flaws, or if you call them blind spots, that's fine too, 
But I don't think that they actually undermine his enormous legacy that I've been talking about earlier in our conversation in this podcast. They're human flaws of a driven human being, somebody who's animated by passion and outrage, but somebody who still overcame overwhelming odds to expand what was the realm of the possible for his people. And I think we have to give him credit for that and say, okay, so every human being is flawed. These were his flaws. But, um, but he's grown ever larger in the national imagination since. And these flaws, I think, pale into relative insignificance by comparison with his achievements. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Saru. Just final, final question. Uh, some say that history hasn't been kind to Dr. Ambedkar. Do you think the future will be? Um, you've touched upon his legacy, but how do you think Indians in 2050 or, say, people around the world in 2050 might remember him? Well, if you look at the curve of the, of the graph of his popularity and the admiration levels, it's been growing since he died in 1956. It keeps growing. Uh, every year, new statues, every year, new celebrations, new museums, new memorials. Um, I've been to Diksha uh, Bhumi, which commemorates the place uh, where he converted to Buddhism in 1956. I've been to Chaitya Bhumi, where he was uh, cremated after his death. These are all magnificent memorials to his, uh, his legacy. Uh, you have more and more uh, uh, statues coming up and, uh, uh, and all over the place, not just in his native Maharashtra, but in places like Telangana and elsewhere. Uh, there, there's a huge lot happening uh, uh, to, to keep his name and memory alive. You and I talked a little earlier about the Dalit rappers and the Dalit musicians who've come in. Uh, we've got a serious attempt to co-opt him by every political movement in the country. Even the BJP and the RSS, uh, who one would have imagined would be rather negative about him, have chosen instead to see all the good things in him. They publish books on Ambedkar. They're trying to celebrate his his, uh, his achievements, they celebrated the centenary, and they're trying to appropriate, uh, on his 125th birthday, and they're trying to appropriate his, um, his life. So, in many ways, I think the message is going to keep spreading. This year, the BJP created an entire social justice week around his birthday. More and more institutions are being named for him, technological institutions, universities. Um, his, his fame is spreading globally. And as, as uh, uh, people from the Dalit community migrate, they're also taking the message of Dalit emancipation to foreign countries. And now foreign countries are honoring him as well. I don't see any way that you're going to find people uh, diminishing his significance. There are student bodies named for Ambedkar in pretty much every campus in India today. Um, uh, there are um, writers of great quality who are, who are hailing him. So I, I would say, uh, Utkash, if this trend just continues, if from 1956 to 2022 he's gone from, let's say, uh, a number three out of 10 in the national consciousness to a number nine, uh, he's certainly going to go towards a number 10 in the next next uh, couple of decades. I, I, that's what I certainly would expect. I hope that my book is a small contribution to keeping today's generation aware of, of his extraordinary achievements. Yeah. Dalit comics, comics too. Dr. Tharoor, thank you so much for writing this book and for doing what you do. We've learned so much from you and we'll continue to do that in the times to come. We really, really appreciate the time you took out for us. Thank you. Thank you, Utkash. And I look forward to your putting this podcast out and adding my voice to absolutely um, amplifying it. Uh, take good care and all the best to all of your viewers on Network Capital.